Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. The band and our career was my main focus in life for over a decade. And it was the place where I put all of that energy and that creativity. And it was almost intoxicating, really, right? Because it was a, it was kind of a, a spiritual connection between the four and then five of us. It was an endeavor that was all-consuming. It was something that kept me in flow and brought a lot of high highs, you know, really just not as much in terms of performing in the early days, but in terms of writing and recording and coming up with new songs and expanding our creative selves and growing together. That was all very fulfilling and exciting. When that wasn't there anymore, when I wasn't able to place myself in that context, and have that expression, that connection, and that purpose. There was a void, a really big void right in the middle of me. And it felt like my identity had really been stripped away. And so, yes, I, I didn't know where to put that energy. I didn't have any sense of, of meaning. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. And today we have the one and only Ryan Dusick. Ryan is best known as the founding drummer of the band Maroon 5. As a boy, he dreamt of pitching for the Dodgers and writing adventure novels. Arm injuries sidelined his baseball career just as rock music became his new passion and purpose. In 1994, he founded the band Kara's Flowers with fellow Brentwood High School students, Jesse Carmichael, Mickey Madden, and Adam Levine. Ryan spent the next seven years honing his craft. And in 2001, the band found success after changing its name to Maroon 5 and releasing their first album, Songs About Jane. Multiple hit songs, two Grammy Awards, and 20 million albums sold later, Ryan found himself suffering with mental health issues that affected his ability to play. He worked tirelessly to overcome the mental hurdles that kept him from doing the thing he loved, but eventually was forced to leave the band. His career as a performer came to an end just as it was taking off. Ryan's depression and grief around the loss of his identity brought about years of alcoholism and mental health struggles. He finally found sobriety in 2016 and began a new life path full of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Today, Ryan works as a mental health professional at the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety in Agora Hills, California, and is spreading the message that recovery is possible. Ryan's debut memoir, Harder to Breathe, was published in 2022, which tells his incredible story. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. I tried to take a little bit of a different angle with Ryan since he is on a book tour and talking a lot about this amazing memoir, Harder to Breathe. I love what Ryan's doing now as a mental health therapist and how he is spreading awareness about mental health issues and sharing his story. Don't want to give much more away. The interview speaks for itself. So without further ado, I give you Ryan Dusick. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. 
Brian, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on, Ashley. I've listened to most of the interviews you've done about this book. And so I I love all the different angles that you have been able to touch on with your story. What has been the most surprising experience about releasing this memoir that you just are about to put out on November 15th? Wow. Well, it's been a whole new journey for me, right? And it's interesting to me, you know, since uh, the last time I was in the public sphere, how much the dialogue has changed, you know, talking about mental health and about recovery and about sobriety. Like, I know my social media feeds probably give me more of that than somebody else who's not looking for it. But it seems like there's a lot out there. And and these conversations that I'm having with people, it's really, it's uplifting to see that people are thinking in in ways about their, their mental health, about recovering and growing and moving on to a life of fulfillment. Yes, yes, I I agree. Sometimes I think my feed, I'm unsure whether or not my feed reflects what everyone else's does. No, everybody's talking about mental health, but uh, it it is. It's really changed even in the last five years of how we talk about this. And it's very, very exciting. How do you relate to mental health? You talk a lot about anxiety. You work at an anxiety treatment program right now. I want to hear how anxiety fits into alcoholism because I think it's actually something that we don't talk about enough. Yeah. Well, anxiety was a big part of my story with alcoholism. I didn't realize how much anxiety was a part of my life beforehand because I didn't really relate to it as that. I didn't use that word a lot to describe what I was experiencing, but I, I was always uh, very self-conscious, very inside of my body and, and conscious of the, what it felt like to be me. And it, it was kind of alienating from my surroundings. I felt very disconnected from the world around me a lot of the time and very perfectionistic and very sort of obsessive compulsive. When I started drinking, as many people do, I felt that it actually made me a better version of myself because I was less less self-conscious. You know, I was in my mind more present and more able to connect with people and be uh, spontaneous and fun and outgoing. And, you know, it just seemed to calm the nerves. And at first it worked for that reason, right? A little bit. And, and I felt like a version of me that was trapped inside was coming out. But the irony is you think of, of alcohol as soothing the nerves when you drink it, right? Yeah. And over time, it actually made my anxiety and my nerves 10 times worse. It got to a point where if I wasn't drinking, I was having a panic attack almost all day until I got a certain amount of booze in me. And then my nerves would calm down a little bit. But at the end, it was like anxiety, 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 pass out, wake up, anxiety, anxiety. It was just constant. There was no in between. So I think a lot of people don't realize that even if you're drinking just recreationally, like at night or on the weekends, you're wiring yourself for more stress. You talk about perfectionism and and OCD, but what I heard a lot in your story was someone who is extremely motivated to be in their creative space and, you know, as it related to drumming and meeting Adam and putting this band together. And you guys were so young to put, it takes a lot of work to get a band on the road out there. You guys did a ton of work. Do you think that the same thing that made you successful in this one space, when that music career felt like it ended, do you feel like that contributed, that was the same driver of your alcoholism as it was your your music career? Absolutely. Because the band and our career was my main focus in life for over a decade. And it was the place where I put all of that energy and that creativity. And it was 
almost intoxicating really right because it was a it was kind of a, a spiritual connection between the four and then five of us it was an endeavor that was all consuming it was something that kept me in flow and brought a lot of high highs you know really just not as much in terms of performing in the early days but in terms of writing and recording and coming up with new songs and expanding our creative selves and growing together that was all very fulfilling and exciting when that wasn't there anymore when i wasn't able to place myself in that context and have that expression, that connection, and that purpose. There was a void, a really big void right in the middle of me. And it felt like my identity had really been stripped away. And so, yes, I, I didn't know where to put that energy. I didn't have any sense of, of meaning in what I wanted to pursue in life. It seemed like everything just kind of dropped off a cliff for me. And so the only thing I could find at that point in my life to escape that or to medicate it or however you want to put it, was alcohol because it kind of put me in a different space. It took me into a, I don't know, a place that I felt like I was just trying to have fun and just trying to let loose or relax or whatever it was that evening or that day, but obviously didn't solve the problem. It just made it worse. Yeah, which is so infuriating because we are trying to solve a problem. We were drinking to to ease this discomfort and yet it does the opposite. When your situation is described, right? You guys work for 10 years to be an overnight success and you you put in all this creative work. It's not just a job. It's lyrics, it's time, it's practice. It's so much of who you are. And you take this perfectionistic thing that you have. And now you take all of that away from you. Do you think there's any... Because as I was thinking about your story, I was wondering, is there anyone who would have had the coping skills? Like take your story, take your age, take all those things. Is there anyone who would have had the coping skills to deal with that drop off with 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 the you know the career ending injury and then starting over? Do we know people? I, I don't know anyone who has that type of skills. I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, some people uh, are born and raised with a lot of resilience, and they're able to overcome things that are very painful in a in a graceful way. I'd like to think that I'm one of those people, but this was just something that was so devastating to me. I I, I really couldn't even understand what I was going through, uh, let alone cope with it or overcome it. It took me a long time to realize that something I was dealing with was grief as much as anything, stages of grief, you know, uh, being in denial early on. And then, you know, the anger, you know, misdirected anger, and then realizing I was angry at myself uh, more than anyone. And depression, of course, heavy depression. And it took me a decade really to achieve acceptance and kind of find closure on that chapter of my life. I probably would have gotten there a little quicker had I not been in the throes of alcoholism. But we all kind of grow at our own pace. And I had to go through what I had to go through to get to the point that I did and find recovery finally. When you look back, what are some of the things that you see that turned out, you know, in retrospect to be alcoholism that you chalked up to normal kids or normal fame or normal, you know, whatever it was? What are some of those things you're like, oh, that was alcoholism? Great question, because alcoholism goes in stages, right? Nobody starts drinking thinking, I'm going to destroy my life, right? <laughs> and I was actually a kid that was raised that alcohol and drugs were bad and you don't drink to get drunk and all drugs are like heroin. And I didn't, I abstained from all of that. I got drunk maybe a couple times when I was a teenager. For the most part, I was what you would call straight edge. In my 20s, I started drinking, realizing that everyone my age was going out and having a good time and thought maybe I'm, I'm just being a little too upset 
uptight about it. And early on, like I said, you know, it, it definitely worked. It definitely brought out a side of me that was more relaxed and more outgoing. But even then, I definitely can look back now and see ways in which my drinking or just my thoughts about the drinking were alcoholic. Because everyone around me in college was going out on weekends and drinking. But I prided myself on the fact that I could drink as much or more than anyone. And I was the one who still had it together. I was the one walking people home and making sure everyone was safe. And I was never, I, I could handle my liquor, right? <laughs> I wasn't getting sick. I could combine, you know, five different kinds of alcohol and, and I was, I was ready to go. And that made me more of a man or something. You know, right, something right. Ridiculous. And, and then also just the sort of obsession around it. I remember sort of counting the days of the week between the times that I would go out and did I abstain enough days that I'm going to get a perfect buzz on three drinks when I go out. And if I didn't get that perfect buzz after three drinks, I was like upset with myself. Like I didn't plan it out just right. I didn't get that high that I was looking for. So there's a lot of thought put into my relationship with alcohol on a daily and weekly basis before it escalated to a point where I was having problems with it. And it, you know, over time, it kind of escalated. And on the road, I was, it was a similar relationship in that when we had a night off, I really wanted to tie one on and let loose because we were under so much stress and pressure and traveling all the time. And it just felt good to kind of have a, a release valve. Looking back, you know, there probably were better ways that I could have self-soothed and given myself self-care. You know, maybe taking a day at the spa, getting a massage or, you know, going for a walk and having a stretch, whatever it may be, probably would have been a healthier way to cope with the stresses that I was under than tying one on and letting loose. So again, at that point, I didn't really think of it as a problem per se. But looking back, I can see it was the beginnings of a problem. What were your bandmates doing when you guys were on the road and you were using these coping mechanisms? What coping mechanisms, not to out them, of course, but what coping mechanisms were they using? Using, did they look different from yours? Yeah, I mean, everyone's different. Everyone was going on their own journey. And we were all together sort of in a submarine living this weird experience together. And so you were very intimately aware of what everyone was kind of going through. Although being, you know, 25 years old and boys, you know, we didn't really communicate our feelings all that much. But, you know, James, the guitarist, you know, he he was really into self-help books and he turned me on to a couple good ones. He was always thinking about bettering himself. So he had a good head on his shoulders. But, you know, we all did the same thing you know, in terms of like the college lifestyle of letting loose at times. I probably did it more than almost anyone in the band because I actually had gone to college and had that experience. I know that Adam at a certain point, he was getting tired of like losing his voice on the road. So he he kind of decided he was going to be pretty straight on the road. He, he made singing his priority and he didn't like drink or smoke or anything because he just wanted to perform well, uh, which I give him a lot of kudos for to take his craft that seriously. It was hard for me to do that at that point. Not that I didn't take my craft seriously, but just that I felt so overwhelmed a lot of the time that the only thing I could think to let loose on a night off was to, you know, go out and have a bunch of beers. Uh, but everyone had their own stuff. We were all our own people. Mickey and, and Jesse are very creative people. They, I remember them, you know, watching a lot of uh, old movies in the front of the bus and talking about art and photography and cool stuff like that. So it wasn't all unhealthy. What does it feel like to have, you know, you're a founding member of this, this band that most people are aware of and is, you know, in the news what does it feel like to not be a part of that anymore? And and how do you think about that now as, as a chapter in your life? Well, it took me a long time to get to the place that I am now where I look at it as something that I'm very proud of 
from my past, something that I worked really hard at with some really great friends of mine. I have very fond memories, not of, you know, the fame or the fortune that came later. All that's, that was all, you know, nice, but it was the camaraderie between us. It was the process. It was the, you know, the creative energy and the sort of synergy when we all got together that was greater than the sum of its parts. So I really look at like that, you know, decade of my life as a wonderful chapter that ended unfortunately. And there was a lot of pain at the end, but a lot of great stuff before that. And just very proud of what we achieved. You know, we, we stuck with it for a decade and we finally, I think, made a record that was a once in a lifetime uh, moment for all of us. When you're doing it and you're in the middle of it, you can't recognize that it's this, it's never going to be like this again, you know, just a very special moment. So I, I'm just very happy and proud and grateful to have been a part of that and to have created that. And I, in some ways, it seems like just yesterday. And in other ways, it seems like another lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I relate to that a lot. You get to this place where you need to get sober. You're drinking an incredible amount going through DTs. It sounds like you needed a medical detox from how much you were drinking daily. What was your turning point where you said, I do want to enter treatment or or move to the next phase of this and, and stop drinking like this? It was really complicated for me because, you know, the anxiety was getting worse and worse. I was almost basically agoraphobic and having panic attacks almost on a a daily basis. And the other thing was that at a certain point, I was identifying anxiety as the problem first and foremost, and that alcohol was just an unfortunate coping mechanism for the problem, right? And so I went to psychiatrists and I got medication for anxiety. And I thought maybe that was the answer because it would help me to curb my drinking. And I did the benzodiazepines and I, you know, and the antidepressants. And, you know, I'm amazed looking back at how little information they give you when they prescribe you a drug like that, how addictive it is, how much you build a a dependence very quickly. And to be quite honest, it made my drinking problem 10 times worse because I was very cautious about mixing the two. I, I really didn't want to... I was trying to curb my drinking in my own silly way, but I ended up towards the end going through these cycles where I would be taking Clonopin for a few days and then I really wanted to drink. So I'd stop taking it and I would drink on a bender and it would make my drinking so much heavier because I was going through basically withdrawals from the benzos and all the anxiety from that, that I had to you know stay up drinking all night just to, just to calm down. Um, so I went through these really bizarre sort of cycles of anxiety that there was almost like paranoia involved. And it's hard to really quantify the moment when I knew that I I wanted to change. But there were a few very humbling moments. I mean, I remember going through these cycles and one night being up all night drinking and off of my meds and like thinking my cats were looking at me funny. (laughs) Which they were, obviously. (laughs) Probably. They probably could sense there was something really off with me, right? And I remember, you know, just like things like the gardener or, or the UPS guy walking up the driveway and being freaked out and hiding in my bathroom. You know, just really terrible stuff that I look back and I can't relate to at all. It had to have been just the insanity of addiction that I was in at the time. And the very end, you know, it was just one of those things where I couldn't hide it anymore. I was drinking every day. Uh, I had chosen the alcohol over the meds completely. And I was just basically white knuckling every day, trying not to drink and then drinking until 
I had some support. I was very lucky to have support that encouraged me to go into rehab, to go out to the desert to Betty Ford. And yes, I needed a medical detox and I needed an inpatient treatment. And at that point, I was at such a low in terms of my spiritual self. I was just disconnected from living completely, just drinking to numb uh, the pain until I passed out and then waking up to a flood of more anxiety and pain. And uh, it was just wasn't a way of living that I considered you know worth living anymore. And I, I just was sick and tired of it and wanted to try to walk in the other direction of, of health and recovery. And fortunately, I was able to do that and get the support that I needed. Can you describe what it feels like to make a decision that you're not going to drink, not want to drink, and then drink? Yeah, that was something that came... Pretty close to the end, you know, I, I prided myself for the longest time in my delusional thinking that I had control over it. You know, I could take breaks. I could sober myself up. You know, I, I did uh, dry February every year for a few years there because I figured if I can get through a whole month without drinking, then I don't have a problem, right? Of course, I was picking February, which was the shortest month. <laughs> 28 <laughs> That's so funny. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. But at the end, it got to the point where I was like, I'd wake up thinking I'm not going to drink today. I'm going to go and I'm going to be creative. I'm going to do something with purpose. And somewhere along the line, without even thinking, I would end up at the liquor store buying booze and was drinking it before my brain could even like contemplate counteracting that thought or that impulse. It went from thinking I had control for a decade to all of a sudden having to really realize I never had control. And it just kept getting worse until it was very obvious to me that I had no control. I think it's really difficult for people who don't haven't experienced what we've experienced to understand this this phenomenon, if you will, of making a decision you're not going to drink or use, not wanting, like not only making a decision, but you're making now you're making it for you. I do not want this stuff in my body and then doing it anyway. And it's it's the real it's the insanity of our dis-ease and what we do and how we, you know, spiral out of control. And I always like to stop on that piece of it because I think it really encompasses what alcoholism, what the feeling of addiction is like, where you don't want to do something and your body and your hands and your feet do it anyway. And you look and feel insane. Yeah. I, you know, when I went back to school and to get my degree in clinical psychology, I had a professor. I think he just liked to push our buttons, but he's, he made a comment one day. He liked to make us think really was what it was, but he said, you know, getting sober is really easy. Just don't drink. <laughs> and I, and I was like, I understand the logic of that. Yes. It's very simple. There's a drink on the table. I'm not going to pick it up and drink it. I'm just going to leave it there. It's a simple idea. But when you are at that point of addiction, it's not so simple. There are forces that are going on inside of you that are much greater than just the thought, I'm not going to drink that drink. It's beyond your control. It's not something your willpower has control over at that point. It feels like you're drowning and someone put a glass of oxygen on the table and you're supposed to say no, knowing that you're drowning and you can't breathe. It's an unimaginable place to be. And yet it's very, very real. And from the outside looks pretty insane to our loved ones who are trying to help us. What was it like getting sober and then going to grad school and, and kind of like go, oh, I should maybe I should look at this new career, this new path where I dive into this topic full time? 
It was really enlightening and and very fulfilling. And it really just was the next indicated action for me. We talk about taking the next indicated action in recovery. It was a natural step for me because when I got sober and I had gotten about six months under my belt, I had done the inpatient thing. I'd done, you know, sober living and an outpatient kind of program. And then I volunteered at that outpatient program as a peer support, leading some groups. And that at that point in my recovery was the most fulfilling thing that I was doing. And it was the thing that motivated me most because I was being of service. I don't know if it was the first time in my life that I was being of service, but it certainly was the first time in a long time. And that I was doing something that I felt was purposeful and meaningful and you know, sharing something of myself with another human being in a helpful way. So just doing that and realizing the, the, the power of it uh, and then getting some good feedback and people saying, you know, have you thought about doing this for a living? You're actually pretty good about, you know, in terms of articulating these ideas of recovery and having some empathy for the people that are still struggling. And I thought to myself, you know what, that actually seems like a really nice way to spend my life from this day forward. And so I, I didn't know if I could get into a grad program because my undergrad degree was in English. Um, but I applied to Pepperdine and I got in and a month later, I was sitting in a class for clinical psychology going for my master's degree. And it was scary. You know, it was like another test for my anxiety. You know, think about it, going from where I was passing out on the couch every night to be up in front of a class giving a lecture on mindfulness, <laughs> you know, just a couple of years later. <laughs> so that was quite a journey. And it just it offered me another opportunity for growth and something that I wanted to take on as a challenge. I learned a lot. I grew a lot. I had to do a lot of self-reflection. It was another stage of recovery and of therapy for me, really. And then I discovered that I could be of service to people in an even greater way if I have this education and then I'm able to apply myself. I didn't foresee it, but it, it just kind of came about naturally and it's been very fulfilling. What are some of the topics and skills that you use when you're talking about anxiety and how do you explain them to your clients? And the reason I ask this is that a lot of the time, I think we hear people say, just meditate or, you know, think a different thought or there's, there's, I understand the deeper piece of that, but it feels like a lot of the skills for anxiety almost feel like a brush off given how intensely you're feeling the anxiety and how simple and, and unachievable sometimes those skills feel. When you're working with clients in your IOP program who are literally unable to function as a result of their anxiety, what are some of this, the first steps you have people take? Well, I really like mindfulness as a starting point, as a just a concept of philosophy, and then as a meditation routine, because I had tried a lot of different kinds of meditation, and I was not able to sit with myself and my breathing and control it and control the thoughts and, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy approach of, you know, changing the thought. Because every time I tried to push a thought out of my mind, it came back 10 times stronger, right? Mm -hmm. And when I was listening to someone's voice, you know, telling me how to breathe, controlling my breathing, it would make me hyperventilate. <laughs> right? right. Okay. Mindfulness is unique in that you're not trying to change what's happening. You're not pushing something out of your mind. You're trying to be more present, more accepting of what is actually occurring. It's all about radical acceptance of the present moment. And, you know, when you have a panic attack, what are you trying to do immediately? How do I make this end? How do I push this away? What, what can I do to make this subside? How can I control my breathing? How can I stop my heart rate from going so fast? Where do I need to leave? Do I, you know, you're just thinking of the ways to escape, including taking a pill 
or drinking a drink. Those are ways to escape what's occurring in that moment, what's so uncomfortable in that moment, right? Mindfulness is a way, instead of trying to escape, of leaning in and accepting what's happening in the present moment. It comes into your mind, a thought, you observe it, you acknowledge it, you try not to place judgment on it or try to change it in any way. You have a sensation in your body. Same thing. No need to place judgment on it. No need to try to change it in any way. Just focus on accepting what's happening and just very tenderly moving your focus back to your breathing and to the feeling of being alive and that there's, you know, no sort of uh, lion chasing you right now that <laughs> is causing this. It's just, it's just the sensation that's happening within your body. So that's just as a philosophy, mindful living and mindfulness meditation are kind of a, a good just starting point for me in terms of approaching a new, new relationship relationship to anxiety. So if I'm having a panic attack and I think I'm having a heart attack, literally considering calling 911, do I apply mindfulness in that moment? How, how does that work? Here's the thing. Part of the, the philosophy of mindfulness is that if you wait for the panic attack, just try to start using mindfulness, it's too late, right? <laughs> fair, fair. It's a lifestyle change. It's a it's an overhaul in terms of how you approach your relationship to yourself, to the world, to reality and the present moment. So it starts with every day, every morning, the mindfulness routine of meditation and uh, you know mindful awareness of the present moment. It's something that happens gradually over time. It's not a quick fix. We all want you know a magical pill or something that's I'm going to take a you know a, a four week program and I'm going to be cured. The reality is that there's no being cured from it, from anxiety. It's something we all experience. There's an evolutionary reason why we experience it. It's for us to uh, avoid danger. The problem is that in, we're so disconnected from our natural selves at this point, living in the modern world that we do that that we can misperceive danger, right? It's pretty obvious if you're in nature and like I said, there's a lion chasing you or you need to defend yourself from an invader. Those are genuine reasons why you might kick into fight or flight and need to do something to run away or to fight or whatever it may be. And those feelings can be useful even in today's world. There are reasons why you might need to be elevated. Right now, you know, I'm probably a little more uh, up than I would be if I were just sitting watching TV because I'm talking to you and I have something to say. So having a little bit of nerve having a little bit of butterflies actually helps me in terms of thinking more clearly and making a point. Uh, so that's that's what I'm talking about. In terms of mindfulness, it's changing your relationship to those sensations on a daily basis so that when they come, they're not as scary. You're accepting them as part of the normal experiences and just realizing your fight or flight impulse has gotten a little bit out of whack from what the, the natural feeling would be of living in a moment where there is nothing that's going to kill you right now. It's just something that you're experiencing in your body. So you practice that over time and we call it practice and it you start to change that relationship in a way that the panic attack doesn't come anymore instead of having to use a coping skill when it does come stay tuned to hear more in just a moment hello friends the courage to change endorses many paths to recovery this is why lion rock has a promising new treatment method for substance use disorder ketamine assisted psychotherapy ketamine assisted psychotherapy is a progressive new treatment plan that uses ketamine in a supervised setting that assists in both substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery the nih concludes that ketamine is a useful tool to help people struggling with substance use disorders and it can facilitate abstinence across multiple types of abuse disorders it is also extremely effective in treating anxiety and PTSD 
when it's paired with psychotherapy. Linerock's unique approach of pairing licensed counselors with the medication is the true success here when treating substance use disorder. Most other companies are simply sending ketamine to their clients and offering guides. Lionrock treats the whole person and this new treatment option for substance use disorder recovery and continued recovery continues to show great promise. So if you are interested in Lionrock's ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program and you want to learn more, go to lionrockrecovery.com. Under programs, scroll down to the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy tab. Now back to the show. I love something you said about uh, anxiety and, and those feelings of fight or flight in, in an interview you did where you talked about how the feelings of fight or flight, that excitement is also feels like fight or flight. And this is something that I've been teaching my kids because they feel excited or scared. They, they, we talk about going to a haunted house or going on a, on a roller coaster and they feel fear and don't understand, like, is this fun? Is it scary? And we talk about this. Actually, you have similar sensations when you go in a haunted house, which is theoretically fun. Uh, and when you're in danger or like a scary movie or why do we do scary, thrilling things? Well, because it does bring up those experiences, those feelings in our bodies, and we can actually derive pleasure from them if they're in the right context. And I think that's so important because I didn't know that when I got sober. Yeah, that was that was a big moment for me when I realized that I had somewhere along the line mixed in my mind the idea of excitement and panic because there are a lot of the same bodily sensations. You know, you're shaking, you're, you're sweating, whatever those feelings are for you. And for me, at the end of my drinking and the end of my anxiety disorder, uh, that just meant threat. Right. That was like, I'm going to die. I don't want to feel those things at all. So I was avoiding anything that even would bring excitement, let alone fear. But then I realized at a certain point, like all of the things that we do in our life that are worth doing, all the things that are probably the things we remember most when we look back over our life were preceded by that feeling. Right. 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 (laughs) When you go on a date for the first time, when you kiss somebody that you really like for the first time, when you go up in front of class and actually give a a lecture, you know, that could be terrifying, but it could also be something I overcame that. You know, I did it and I did it well. You walk out on stage and the crowd just loses it. I'm sure that's equally as, as exciting as any roller coaster. Yeah. Think about it. People dream of that moment, right? They spend their whole life wanting to be, get that kind of adulation. And then think about the feeling that you have, the butterflies when you do that. Those are the moments that are really wonderful in life. Those are the things we aim for as those big flashbulb moments in our life that are really memorable. And if we avoid them, we're avoiding so much that's good about life. It's important to realize that those sensations not only alert you to danger, they also alert you to something you really want to do. So now when I feel anxiety in the pit of my stomach, I realize that's something I want to walk towards. Uh, not just because it's something I want to overcome. It's something I want to uh, have that challenge and, and grow from it and learn from it. But also because it might be something that is really rewarding rewarding, something that gives me an enjoyment and a a pleasure and a fulfillment that I I couldn't have fathomed before if I hadn't walked towards that discomfort. Right, right. Before I got sober, the belief in my head, which I didn't know was the belief, was that anything unknown, if I didn't know what was going to happen, what was going to happen was automatically bad. And I didn't realize that I had that thought, but that the unknown always was bad. And so many times the unknown was fun or exciting or, or good. And it plenty of times it was bad as well. But when the unknown is 
in your head always plays out to bad experiences. When that's what you tell yourself, it makes it really hard to create new experiences and to create those highs and those ups and 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 some of the beauty of life that, that you're talking about. And I really had to explore some of those thought processes like you're talking about. And part of that was the mindfulness of that I'm having this feeling. What is this feeling? Like I just identifying I'm having a feeling. It makes me want to get up and stop the feeling or, you know, whatever it was. These are my my goal was always to not feel whatever I was feeling. Yeah. Look, life is life, right? Sometimes things turn out well, sometimes they don't turn out so well. That's reality. So again, acceptance, accepting that reality. Sometimes you're going to walk towards something, do something, and it doesn't turn out the way you want to. But it can be a blessing in disguise, even that. You know, a failure can lead to new learning, uh, new understanding, new awareness that leads to more good things in the future. If you avoid everything that is unknown that you identify as a potential bad experience, then you're avoiding also all the good things that could come from it. What's something surprising that you have experienced as a sober therapist? Uh, well, I have no experience as a drunk therapist, so I can't really compare. <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a recovering, as a recovering therapist. So surprising. Well, you know, there's so much that's surprising about my life at this point. You know, it's so different than it was 10 years ago that, you know, when I got sober and I and I went on this journey and I decided to go back to school and become a therapist, it, it was kind of funny because most people at that point in their life, they're thinking about all the things they missed out on and wanting to find a relationship, wanting to start a new career, uh, wanting to do, you know, really great, exciting things, travel, put out that single they always thought of. <laughs> I had done all those things already, right? I wasn't trying to relive things I had already done. I was trying to actually just live a normal life. So things like getting through a nine to five day, just like having the patience to sit in an office and do my work and not have the freedom that I was used to having of doing whatever I wanted all the time. Those were the kind of challenges that were most new and exciting to me. Most It's flipped around for most people's experience, right? Because I had never lived that life. I was a musician since I was in school. And so my life was always always a little topsy-turvy and my schedule was never consistent. And the idea of just being able to be uh, have a normal schedule and live a normal life and have it be fulfilling in some way, have it be, you know, just not exciting in the way that I, I perceived life to be in the past, but exciting in new ways in that I was engaged in something, that I was experiencing a sense of flow with my work. That is always interesting and, and new to me when I'm realizing I'm not thinking about anything else other than being here right now with my client and engaged in a process that's helpful for them. What's better than that? You know, what else could I be doing with my time that would be more exciting than that? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Looking back at the fame piece of this, in the NBA, when they started to see players, they were pulling players out of high school and, and, and you know, before college. And one of the things that they were seeing was that they were giving them all this money and people were just spending it, ending up completely in debt or broke after because they had no guidance. And so they started to implement things where they had financial advisors for people as they gave them these lump sums of money. I was wondering if you had ideas or thoughts around what might be helpful for people going into this fame transition that seems to take a hold of a lot of people and drive them into these scary places. Is there a place where we as a society could help these people transition, have that transition or ride that wave? Yeah, I think the the world is changing in that regard. I've noticed that there have been some young artists that have 
canceled tours recently because of concerns about their health and their mental health. And uh, you wouldn't have seen that 10, 20 years ago. So the fact that those artists and the industry are supporting that kind of self-care is really hopeful for me. You know, when I was going through what I went through, I don't know if there was an outlet for me to speak up or, or to reach out for help. It didn't feel like it. It felt like we're in the middle of this enormous campaign for world domination. And I'm one guy of, of five in the middle of, you know, an enterprise that is a record label and our promotional team and our management. And who am I to say like, this is too much. Like, I need a break. I think, you know, any way that we can work that into the mindset of this is not a normal life. The structure that you count on in school or a, a quote unquote normal job, the kind of schedule with breaks, with weekends, you know, and the balance that you can find in a more normal way of living kind of goes out the window. So self-care becomes so much more important to cope with everything that's going to come your way. Because when you're having success, I mean, if you get to that level, there are a lot of demands and there's going to be a lot of things put on your plate. The ability to say no, that's another thing in this industry. Like you're not allowed to say no, because if you say no, then they're not going to ask again. Right, right, right. right. So finding ways to be able to say, you know, I would love to do that. Um, Unfortunately, I just got done with three months of touring and I have a week off that I really need. Finding ways to make sure that young people getting into that kind of lifestyle have outlets to, you know, work on themselves and get the self-care they need and find a a balanced life in an unbalanced lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like it drives an unbalanced lifestyle and that everybody is driving that from because everybody has a vested interest in you as the talent and having an unbalanced life. You know, it's also things are different, I think, than when I was on the road promoting songs about Jane. I don't think touring is the same as it was then. We were on the road for four years straight. I think that's kind of unheard of now because most people do most of their legwork on social media. And, and, you know, so by the time you have a record out, you have, you know, 100,000 followers on on your Instagram page or something like that. So I I couldn't tell you how the machinery of the industry works at this point in history exactly. But I know that whatever it is, when you're put in the middle of that, tornado. There's going to be a lot of stressors on you that that most people don't have. And then the adulation, you know, you you can also get to a point where start believing your own hype and stuff. So there's there's a lot that's the psychology of it that even if you were a pretty grounded person going in, it can definitely mess with your head, I think. How does your, you know, your former bandmates, how do they, what do they say about your new career and, and, and how far you've come? They've been great. They've been really supportive and happy for me. And, you know, they struggled with what I went through too. You know, uh, it was hard for me to see that at the time. And I think it was obviously really hard for them to understand fully what I was going through. But we were brothers, you know, we were, we started a band when we were teenagers and it was really difficult for them, I think, to see what I went through and the choice, you know, to move on and continue with the band without me. I know that was really a difficult thing for them. So after everything I went through, for me to be in the place that I'm in now, and to have this book, Harder to Breathe, coming out, which talks about my journey and hopefully will help some people. I think that it also contributes to the legacy of the band. I I mean, I talk about, you know, the formation of the band. I talk about the joy and the inspiration. And I I try to, you know, paint it in in really positive terms because it was just such an incredible experience for me. So in every way, I think that it's uh, something that at least I hope they're really happy for me about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's an incredible story. It's an important story. 
And I love the way that you're telling it. To be honest, I've heard um, plenty of stories where people are, you know, experienced fame and, and, and addiction and the way that you talk about yours, the, the anxiety piece of really focusing on what was underlying the addiction and feeling those feelings that you had leaving and then, you, you know, becoming a therapist. It's, it's really awesome. And I'm, I'm very happy for you. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. And uh, we will have all the links in the episode so that people can check out your book and hear more about the formation of Maroon 5 and your story to sobriety and becoming a therapist. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thanks for sticking around for our outro. Scott, I had an amazing time in that interview. Any thoughts and feelings that came up for you? Totally. Yeah. I mean, this one, this is a story that I think is, we've had a few this season that are, the scale is enormous, right? Like, I mean, he put context to it, but it's like, can you imagine spending 10 years of your life doing something that you love, like with people you love, you know, you believe in this thing, you start doing it when you're in high high school and it's like this pipe dream you just you're trying to will it into existence you literally hit this point you add one band member you change your band name you release an album and you explode right like it, it's it's the thing that you have wanted for so long and then it all just starts to fall apart i just i can't imagine what that would feel like it would be like somebody handing you this like winning lottery ticket and then it's literally like decomposing in your hands you just like no, 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 no. I'm totally with you. I 100% with you. I can't even imagine when I read the story. Plus, there's something, I don't know, strangely tragic about the fact that it was an arm injury, that it was a shoulder injury. So his his shoulder, he basically couldn't play anymore. And it was so painful. And then also the mental health piece of it. And it just spiraled. Basically, the band was like, we can't wait for you to recover anymore. We have to make another album. The injury that ended the baseball career that he talks about in high that he has in high school is the injury that led to him having to take time off and then eventually having to leave the band, which of course came with mental health stuff. But he could not perform because of the shoulder injury. That's why I asked him, do you think there's a person that could have managed the emotions that you experienced without drinking yourself? Like, I almost was like, well, yeah, like, what is the other outcome? Is it possible for a human to experience what he experienced and not completely fall apart? I, actually, I'd be afraid of that person, to be honest. Like, I'd be like, you have something going on in your mind. You just took that so easily. Like, like what? No way. No way. That is the normal response, in my opinion. Although, what do I know about normal? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But yeah, it just to me, I was like, well, yeah, what else? I don't know. That would be so hard. And of course, you're you also want to be happy for them because these are your friends and you want them to have success and it behooves you that they're successful. I, I just am like, yeah, yeah, you fell apart and that's completely understandable and good for you for coming back from it. Me, I just think if you put me in that same situation too, it's like even let's put aside the physical stuff. Like if you just put me in an environment where I got to do whatever I wanted, I traveled, I was expected to like turn it on every single day over and over again for new people in a new city for four years straight of touring where you just like... Yeah. 
might have a week off here and there. And no, then you're just expected even. to just like turn it on and turn it on and turn it on and turn it on. Like uh, I could be as healthy as possible. And I just don't know how a person can survive that. Like that's just so, so intense. That's why I was asking him, what did the other band, you know, not, not to like out them, but just like what did generally did uh, the other band members, you know, I guess they were managed it differently. But yeah, I mean, the ultimate thing was this, this shoulder injury that, you know, he played drums. I was like, can he be the hype man for the band? Or like, you know, can't they just dance? Yeah. Like rappers have like a a crew, you know, of people that just come with them everywhere. Can you, a posse, what's it called? An entourage. Can't he just be like in the entourage or I don't know. I, I was, I was literally brainstorming solutions to a problem <laughs> that happened 10 years ago. Do they have any triangle parts in any yeah, of the songs? Yeah, yeah totally. I just can't totally. remember. I love that he is really focused on and really talked about anxiety because that is something I hear about all the time as it relates to drinking and what drinking does for us. And I think that, you know, and also I love that he, you know, the word perfectionism, right? Like I hear that thrown around a lot. And I think people see it as it's one of those, it's kind of like the question, like, what's your greatest weakness in in an interview, right? It's like the safe one to say it has a positive and a negative connotation. But in my mind, there is no perfection. So you're if you are a perfectionist, you are always unhappy. That's what that means. You are never satisfied. Nothing is ever good enough. But I wonder what percentage of people who like really have found some success and say the arts of some kind, like have to have that, right? Like the, in order to make the best thing. Maybe, maybe, but also, you know, success and happiness are not, <laughs> you know, that's not the same thing. And I think anybody who has experienced any kind of success can tell you that it isn't what makes you happy. And very disappointingly, right? Very disappointing because happiness is much more elusive. Totally. In other news, this was our first interview in the new recording studio. Studio. So you'll get to see it and you'll be like, that looks similar to the old one, but is slightly different. And, you know, we just kind of wanted to make it feel like sort of a strange parallel universe for you where you're like, didn't that used to be there? Well, yeah, it did used to be there, but we, we replicated it as close as possible. We can do one of those, you know, those <laughs> pictures where they hold a picture of how it used to look and then like two pictures, they look identical, but like spot the differences. Ooh, I like that. It's a little game. It's a little interactive game that we're going to yeah, have. Yeah, exactly. Little contest, <laughs> little, little fun, fun for your flair. We did wrap up a, a lovely week of, of collaborating and trying to, to build stuff. So hopefully it really comes through and, you know, just the comfort, the, you know, you're going to feel like you really belong in this space it's going to be like um wait i am or they are everybody oh okay. you know, just everybody now we're just talking out of our ass <laughs> i don't know what you guys are hearing but i don't know what uh i posted some videos i have a couple more some videos and photos from our week in person together setting up this office at, we were moving out of my old office which was in like a office building and moving into our new studio office and 
I was a hot mess express, as you would expect. <laughs> I did not disappoint. Carted a whole mailroom cart of stuff down, down to my car, was doing so well. So well. And and was getting ready to put the stuff in the back of the car. And I thought it wasn't going to move. I don't know. I don't know. It has wheels. Yes. But it was, it looked, <laughs> it looked, it looked stable and it came flying and hit me in the back and flew everywhere. Everything fell off. And I was laughing so hard. I thought I was going to throw up and cry. <laughs> it was one of those. It was fantabulous. And then we got to, then we got to play, does a computer monitor work after it's been dropped on the pavement? So it was, uh, it was special. But we had a ball, you know, we had a ball. We had a ball. A lot of laughs. We discussed a lot of important things that you guys are going to hear about (laughs) over the rest of the season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, we fleshed it all out. All life's problems and strangeries. I made that word up. <laughs> if if you want to see what it's like working for Ashley, you can check out her TikTok. There's a video in which just kind of what what it feels like. It's like a it's really interactive yeah, yeah. about sort of Very what it feels like what it, what it feels like to work for Ashley. <laughs> you know, so uh, anybody who's thinking about it, just check yeah, it yeah, out. Yeah first yeah yeah you know, yeah whatever. check it out think about it think it through ask ask some friends do you have a dad joke i do ryan is a uh something that really stood out to me is just how humble he is and all this and how much how open he is kind of about a story and i think that would be hard coming from a world in which you know people tell you you're amazing and they i, I have to imagine that it's a world in which maybe a lot of people who have sort of narcissistic tendencies are drawn to this so that brings me to what I've got for you today, which is, um, Ashley, how many narcissists does it take to screw in a light bulb? None. They screw other people over. <laughs> uh, one, the narcissist holds the light bulb while the rest of the world revolves around him. <laughs> uh... The other one that I like always was um, how many hipsters did it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? It's this number. You probably never heard of it before. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. That is fantastic. <laughs> that is really good. I, I super appreciated Ryan's story. And uh, I, well, we're rooting for you this week, everybody. And we hope that Ryan's story was inspiring that someone who could overcome something as large as that might give people out there a little bit of inspiration that whatever it is they're trying to overcome, that they can do it. Ashley, anything that you want to leave the people with? Uh, super appreciative to the people who are leaving reviews. Please go over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. That is our podcast currency. If you like this podcast and want to support us, that is the easiest and best way to do so is go over and give us a review. So thank you so, so much. I hope you were able to see the similarities and not the differences. And please go order Harder to Breathe anywhere you get your books. See you next time. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.